This morning's reading is taken from two passages in Job, chapter 1. The first is verses 1 to 3, and the second is verses 6 to 22. You'll find the passages starting on page 511 in the Pew Bible. So that's Job, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and the second passage, verse 6 to 22. In the land of Uz... There lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabines attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up, and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Guy. 
one of those readings where when you say this is the word of the Lord, people don't know whether to say thanks be to God, partly because you may not know that that's what a response can be, but partly because you're thinking thanks be to God. Ever had one of those days, like Job, talk about things always come in threes, there was at least four lots of tragedy, disaster that fell upon him. We probably haven't had a day that bad, and actually for Job, worse was to come, but we will all have had moments in our lives which force us to ask some of the hardest questions of life, and that's what we're talking about today. Why is life so hard sometimes. I'm excited to be part of this Yobble series. We're calling it that. It's the initials for the year of biblical literacy. Can't even say it. And in particular, to speak first in this section that we're calling the sage. That's a photo of me uh, from about 20 years' time. (laughs) Not sure about the title, the sage. I'll go with the one letter short of it, with age. Uh, and we'll see how we get on. But these wisdom books of the Bible, which we're talking about for the next three weeks, they form a very different genre of writing. It's found elsewhere in that time, in that part of the world, and it focuses on the big questions about the meaning of life. The best-known ones are those that have found their way into the Bible canon. That's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs. We've got three weeks of listening to this this different voice with its... It's got a tone of something like, uh, wait a minute, is that how it really is? Because that's not how it feels to me, kind of tone to it. And that's good news for any of us who've ever wondered about the deeper meaning of life or who've ever asked hard questions, faced difficult circumstances, or wanted to challenge the status quo a little bit. And I think most of us fall into those categories. So, Book of Job, why is life hard? Quick bit of background, and we do so with this kind of rather scary comment with which one of the commentaries I looked at opens. It is presumptuous to comment on the Book of Job. It's so full of the awesome reality of the living God. Um, But we're going to presume, and we're going to comment, and we're going to try and fit as much as we can into this time. And we'll do so with honesty, because Job is a tricky book. Uh, I asked uh, our small group on Thursday, um, if I tell you I'm preaching on the book of Job on Sunday, give me a one-word response to that. And they came up with words like uh, suffering, pain, Darkness, anger, frustration, don't like it, never read it. What is Job anyway? I'm not going to name names. It's a tricky book. It's obscure in places. It's very long. It's a bit repetitive. It's easy to skip over in our Bible reading. Be warned, it's coming up in your Yobble readings, if you're doing that uh, daily reading thing, but you'll be better equipped, I hope, to cope with it uh, after this morning. It's worth pursuing because it's also about the common human experience of violence, 
destitution, sickness, humiliation, bereavement, depression, anger, doubt, that are all part of our human existence. And it's the inspiring story of one man who, against all the odds, held on to God with a faith that survived and even grew through the torments of utter loss. I love the last bit of the song we were just singing. I think Job could have written that. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. But it takes a long time to get to the end of the story. Summarize the story. Job, we heard the intro to it. He's a godly man, a wealthy man who is overwhelmed by troubles. He's stripped of wealth, of family, and finally of his health too, as his body breaks out in all these horrible sores. That means he has to go and sit on the rubbish dump at the end of town because that's the place where he feels he belongs. And some of us, again, will kind of immediately start identifying. Sometimes we feel as if we're only worth putting in the rubbish tip. And he doesn't know why any of this has happened to him. It's a mystery to him. That prologue we heard about the the conversation between God and Satan, which is just part of the story set up, I think, for this story that reveals theological truths to us about life and suffering and uh, faith in the midst of all of that. Uh, He doesn't hear that part of the story anyway. Three friends, later a fourth one, come along to console him in his misery and they engage in a long cycle of dialogues about what's happening. Basically, the friends blame Job's suffering on his sin. Instead of accepting that and their advice to repent, Job insists on his innocence and directly questions the justice of God. Eventually, God appears in a whirlwind and speaks directly back to Job before an epilogue wraps up the story. That's the 42 chapters in one short paragraph. Now, there's a lot we don't know about the book of Job. Sometimes at this point of an introductory sermon, we'll tell you about times and dates and authorship and context. And the honest answer is, we don't know the answer to any of those questions for sure. Uh, Scholars love that, actually, when we don't know the answers, because it gives them permission to write thousand-page books that justify where they're coming from. I'm not doing down theological scholarship here. Come to the lecture. Uh, It's great. But there are some times when actually not knowing the answers to those questions, I think, is a good thing. In my own experience of living through suffering in which so much, not as much as Joe, but lots of stuff, it just felt like another thing stripped away, another thing stripped away, another thing stripped away. I found a companion here in the book of Job with whom I could identify, alongside whom I could sit or stand with clenched fist and ask the hard questions and eventually in the end reach my own new place of relating to God from where I was. And the very unknownness of the background enables Job to become like an everyman character, someone for all of us who can represent us in the place of our pain. 
And even Job's name adds to this. There's lots of different ways of translating his name, but two of them struck me in particular. One of one of the, the ways of translating the name Job can, can point to the presence of a divine father, the goodness of God. But the name also sounds like a word which means the persecuted one, who God has abandoned. So that the title character of this story sums up the tension between the father-like God who we can trust and an apparently uncaring God who we might want to challenge. And sometimes that's the tension within which we live our lives. This is our book. Okay, I'm guessing you want me to get on with the answer to the question. That's what you all came for this morning. Why is life hard? Well, I think this book is like the experience of the people in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you haven't read that or seen the film, they build a massive computer to find the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And they wait for this giant computer to come up with the answer. And when the answer finally comes out of the computer, it just says 42. And they're a bit disappointed because they, they wanted the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. So they end up building an even bigger computer to find out what the ultimate question was in the first place. And I think Job's a bit like that because, ostensibly, it asks the question, why do good people suffer? But in the end, it gives us an answer a bit like 42. Gives us a whole lot of other answers that don't directly address that question, but give us lots of other uh, useful pointers along the way. Firstly, it addresses the question of, is suffering a result of sin? That's actually the crux of the long dialogues between Job and his friends. There are parts of Scripture which declare that obedience to God means everything will be okay. Good things follow obedience. Bad things follow disobedience. And Job's friends are orthodox. They're not the wacky ones here. That's the theology they know, the understanding they have. And actually, that's deep within us too. When we face suffering, we all ask, what did I do to deserve this? Why me? Is God punishing me? If that's where you are, even today, Job's refusal to submit tamely to that orthodoxy, that simplicity, is music to your ears. The story of Job's undeserved suffering questions that orthodoxy. It acknowledges that human misery is not only explainable by things like punishment or correction or even redemption, sometimes it's just unexplainable. The answer is, we don't know the answer. Sorry about that, but that's the answer that we have. The answer is that we don't have the answer, other than the fact that we live in a fallen universe of uncertainty and risk from which good people are not excluded. In the end, God will agree with Job that he has not sinned and criticize his friends for their poor theology. Actually, a lot of the answers come in chapter 42, which I don't think is prophetic of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, <laughs> but it's just one of those interesting connections. 
In the New Testament, Jesus will answer the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? To which Jesus answered, nobody sinned. Nobody sinned. This brings relief in the midst of pain and darkness. Worrying that we are rejected by God on top of everything else that we're facing only adds deeper anguish to our suffering. And that's what Job's friends manage to do to him. He needed compassion, and they gave him something quite different. So actually, that leads to another little question. It's a bit of a side question, so I'll just be very quick with this. How do we come alongside those who suffer? Job's friends do get some things right. They turn up. They hear he's in trouble. They turn up. That's something we can do. And for the first seven days, they don't say anything. They just sit with him and they weep with him. That's something we can do too. You don't have to have magic answers, the answer, special words. Just being with people makes a difference and punctures for a few minutes the terrible isolation which suffering brings. Then they open their mouths and it all goes wrong from that point onwards as they try to force Job's unique experience of suffering into their own limited understanding, just turning up the dial on his agony and pain. And then there's another, actually, when we think about it, quite unsettling question which this book raises uh, and maybe doesn't answer but forces us to ask it of ourselves. From one perspective, you see, in the book of Job, God is on trial. That actually becomes part of the, the literary form of the book. Job says, God, I'm putting you in the dock here and I'm going to ask you some hard questions. But the setup of the story, which we heard from Guy, also turns that on its head and puts Job in the dock and us with him. It's the question that, that's put into the mouth of Satan in the prologue. Why is Job good? Why does Job bother to be such a good person, to trust in God? Is he good simply because he has been so blessed? And the language is very visual language. It's the language of God having built a hedge, a protective hedge around him and, and filled that hedge with lots of good things so that Job has this amazing life. And of course he'd worship God, wouldn't he? Satan claims that without that, he wouldn't bother being good. And in a simplistic theology of blessing and curse, that would be the logical direction to go wouldn't it? Why wouldn't anyone and everyone be good all of the time? Be good to get stuff. Be good to stay safe. Sounds a bit like some of the prosperity gospel stuff we hear today, but also more subtly in the semi-conscious, subconscious, works-based theology, which makes us try hard to be a good Christian in the hope that life will go smoothly and wonder whether we've been a bad Christian when life is tough. We want to stay living within the hedge. Suffering helps to reveal that fault line in our theology. 
in asking that question. Is Job capable, are we capable, am I capable of just a freely given obedience to God, independent of circumstances? I find myself asking some of those questions in some of the hardest parts of my journey. If this is what following God has brought me to, what's the point? I might as well just do whatever I want to do. Why don't I just walk away? But it's these questions in the crucible of suffering that bring to the surface the dross, the impurities of the real nature of our motivations and our commitments, and they invite us to move to a deeper and stronger and less condition-bound relationship with God which says, I am yours, full stop. I am yours, whatever. Suffering is an invitation to offer to God our trust, regardless of what's going on around us. But it still leaves us with that hardest question. Does God care? Does God care about what I'm going through right now? The prologue places the blame for the harm done to Job at Satan's feet. But as I've said, Job wasn't part of that scene. All he knows is what's happened to him. And the story doesn't answer our questions in the ways we would like with neat explanations, let alone with a way in which we might navigate our lives without having to bump into this unwelcome stranger called suffering. It's something like this. We can believe that we need to reconcile the God is good versus the God is sovereign quandary with an either or answer. Either God is good, but looking at the world around me, thinking about my own circumstances and those I care about, he can't also be sovereign. Or God is sovereign, but looking at all the stuff around me, God can't be good. But what if that is not the choice we have to make? What if it's a category which simply cannot be forced into the reality of the world in which we live? What if our experience of suffering takes us to a new place which is more both and than either or? Suffering took Job on a journey of having his relationship with God tested and transformed. And it is a journey. We've got one sermon in one service today. You can come back again tonight and we'll talk about it again. Uh, But don't misunderstand the fact that we're talking about a long journey, 42 chapters. Takes you a week to read it. Takes us a lifetime to learn it. We get that it's a journey, but just listen to how the journey goes. At first, it looks like he's arrived at the end of the journey straight away. Job's first response to all that stuff that happened in chapter 1, end of chapter 1, Job responds with stunning faith. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He did not sin against God, it says. He's arrived. Chapter 1, we don't need 41 more chapters. Chapter 2, more bad stuff happens. 
And this time it's quite interesting because it says, and still Job did not sin against God with his lips. And there's a kind of unspoken thing, but you know, what was he thinking inside? <laughs> you know, this time he didn't speak out the same words of faith. Maybe doubts are beginning to form within. And if we're not sure about that, because it's the unspokenness of chapter 2, we don't have to wait too long, because in chapter 3, he launches a diatribe. He curses the day he was born, and he starts asking his hard questions of God. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense, when God blocks all road to meaning? And as the story continues, Job shows us that questions like this rightly belong in the realm of faith. It's a place where grief will sometimes necessarily be present. It's a place where depression happens. In the speeches between Job, his friends, and God, that pebble of suspicion about the loss of Job's naive faith becomes an avalanche as he in turn accuses God of making life little more than miserable slave labour. He recounts his many troubles in great detail, and he speaks of the deep darkness into which God has plunged him, the despair that comes when it feels like God is absent, when you most need him to be present. And as I said, Job imagines a courtroom where he puts God in the dock and accuses him of messing up his life big time. His friends tell Job that the way to peace is to stop complaining, repent, and find peace. This sage tells us that the more honest response is not to shut up, but to speak up. Job's hard questions and honest complaints against God are prayers which come from a heart seeking a new integrity of relationship with God, which deals with the world as it is and not as we would like it to be. The journey of suffering invites us into a place of honesty before God where it's okay to raise those questions and have those conversations with God without losing one's faith. Job did not sin, and neither do we. So he doesn't sail serenely through his suffering to the place of peace. For him, fullness of doubt lives alongside stubborn faith. It's a both-and thing. And the calm he attains in the end is only reached through all his suffering, with its attendant hard questions and challenges to faith. It calls us to broaden the vocabulary of our prayers to include lament, complaint, to expand our understanding of God. One picture I had of this is, is that we start with the simple and firmly boundaried box of how we understand God works with us and the world, but suffering forces us either to squeeze those circumstances into this tiny box which it won't fit, or to allow for the expanding of the boundaries of that box to a new way of understanding God and relating to him. Here's how Chris Russell puts it. Following suffering, any talk of God must be possible to say and believe, having experienced what we've experienced, not denying it. Job's companions are wise whilst they are silent, 
but foolish when they try to fit Job's experience of suffering into their previously constructed neat patterns of belief. Our faith must, have, must be big enough and strong enough to have enough space in it for this event too. Not to be made sense of, for that will never be, but simply to be an event that happened within which we now have to relate to God from that reality. He writes, we did not get what we wanted, but what we got was God's presence. There in the valley of the shadow of death, there came among us a man of sorrows and one familiar with suffering. And this is the experience of many who have traveled this hard and rugged road. It's a tough journey. You might be at the very beginning of it. You might be in the midst of it. But at some point, we reach in the end, a point that is no less comfortable, but it is a transformation point, a point of total weakness and vulnerability before God, which his friends know nothing about, because they haven't been where Job is. No longer with a hedge, either to protect us, but also to stand between us and God. Job now has nowhere to hide and nothing to hide behind. And so he dares to come naked and sword and complaining before God. Ruthless trust is only attained through this kind of extreme loss. And in the end for Job, it was this encounter with the reality of God who was sovereign and alive and present in his suffering that led to his breakthrough. Not to the end of his suffering at that point, but to his ability in the midst of despair to say, whatever happens, you are my God. And the story reaches its climax with God finally breaking silence and appearing to Job in a whirlwind. He returns Job's hard questions with a few of his own, not to rebuke him, but to lead Job back to trust in his sovereignty and in his goodness right where he is. First, his sovereignty takes centre stage as he takes Job on a, a virtual tour of the created universe and all his majesty. We had a picture at the start of the service about God inviting us to sit on the top decker of the bus instead of the bottom decker. And it, I think that's kind of what's going on in that moment for Job. God saying, take this perspective. You get a better view from up here. You're reminded of the sovereignty. And then his questions remind Job of who he is before God, with the assurance that he remains, despite everything, the friend and the servant of God. His suffering cannot change that. His complaints cannot change that either. And so Job is able, finally, to proclaim that he's reached a new place with God. He says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. His journey ends with fresh encounter. Faith in the notion of God has been replaced by awesome, intimate encounter with God that may not have been possible any other way. He confesses new faith, real humility, and deep trust. God's grace 
is found to be sufficient. We come now to communion. And wherever you are on this journey, I invite you to come just with open hands that proclaim where you are on your journey this morning. Come with open hands to receive from God the tangible reminders of his love for you, of your belonging to him whatever happens or is happening, and of the cost of that which took God himself to the place of suffering upon the cross. Let's just be still for a moment before Rich leads us in communion. Heart of my own heart, whatever before, still be my vision, O ruler of all.